Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. I think it's safe to say that one of the most diverse things about the United States is actually its food industry. And for foodies seeking out the elusive and I'm putting this in quotes, authentic flavors of any given culture can become an obsession. Uh, there are a lot of things that are often seen as belonging to an ethnic cuisine that are in fact not even recognized in the culture that they're associated with. Uh, fortune cookies, for example, are 100% a North American invention. This episode was inspired by our listener, Justin, who actually asked for a history of Thai food in the U.S., and we're not actually going to talk about Thai food this time around. Perhaps if we do a follow-up episode, we will. But for now, we're talking about the most popular ethnic foods in the U.S. to trace their adoption and adaptations to ultimately become part of our culinary melting pot. Uh, this also ended up being an episode that touches a lot of other episodes that we have done because so much of it is linked to the story of immigration. And one of the f- things that all of these foods really have in common is a basic trajectory. So they are first thought of with a degree of suspicion or disdain by the resident population when they are brought in via immigration. And then there's this slow acceptance and <laughs> revelation that, hey, this is delicious. Uh, and then it shifts and these cultural dishes become celebrated, but in a way that doesn't usually resemble their country of origins cuisine very much. So the term ethnic food, which we are putting in air quotes here, really started to see usage in the United States in the 1950s. And before that, food from cultures that were outside of the United States were just usually referred to as foreign foods. And this was, to some degree, part of a larger post-war shift where white Americans were trying to figure out exactly how to refer to anything that wasn't part of their own culture. So, like, American, in quotes, white people food, calling everything apart from that ethnic? (laughs) Yeah. That's weird and kind of (laughs) gross. But Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where... I actually think there was probably uh, a desire to find an appropriate way to do it, but just in in th- that hunt and setting things apart, you're kind of automatically in a, a danger zone, right? Like, not right. us, other food. And then us is definitely, like, mainstream right. white American palate. Yeah. But I, I read an interview... Uh, recently with uh, Krishnendu Ray, who is an author who wrote The Ethnic Restaurateur. And he didn't, uh, he's also the chair of nutrition and food studies at New York University. And he brought up a really interesting point that he's not the first to make it, but he, he articulated it really well in a Washington Post interview that he did in 2016. And he pointed out uh, something that has been discussed by other scholars, that there is this inherent subconscious association of inferiority with the term ethnic food. So, for example, foods that are usually categorized as ethnic, in quotation marks, a lot of times those are Indian and Thai, Chinese and Mexican. I've even heard people refer to American cuisines from specific groups. as Like, I've heard people call soul food ethnic food when that's an American cuisine. Right. Or sometimes Cajun food gets it, too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, and like, these tend to be... 
uh, often less expensive, a lot of times with a less cultural prestige uh, within the mainstream than, say, French food or Japanese food, which a lot of times don't wind up in the bucket of, quote, ethnic. There are, of course, some exceptions to that. There are uh, high-end Chinese restaurants, economically priced French cafes. There's the whole idea of fusion, which a lot of times is viewed as something that's a little higher class, but draws from different uh, ethnicities. But, you know, as a general rule, that's pretty accurate observation. So as we said, we want to just sort of set that up so you're thinking about it as we go through this. But we're going to cover the three most popular categories of ethnic food, again, using the quotes, in the U.S. today. Those are Chinese, Mexican, and Italian. Chinese food was one of the most common uh, cuisines in the United States. Even very small towns typically have a Chinese restaurant. I know I have been to some, like, incredibly, not even a stoplight, but there's a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. In the documentary, The Search for General So, Su Li, who's the executive director for the Chinese Historical Society, stated that in 2010, Chinese people made up only 1% of the U.S. population. But most Americans have eaten some form of Chinese food. So for clarity, that 1% number represents only people who identified exclusively as Chinese, uh, not as people who identified in combination with other ethnicities. And that's according to the Census Bureau. And to trace the origins of Chinese food's popularity to that point where almost all of us have had it, even though Chinese people do not make up a particularly large segment of the population uh, in North America, we have to go all the way back to the 1850s and even a little bit before that, which we'll talk about. But primarily when the California gold rush brought a great deal of Chinese and specifically Cantonese immigrants to the United States through San Francisco. And there was already a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco before the gold rush. There was one Cantonese restaurant that had opened there in 1849. But initially, Chinese food seemed too new and even scary to most of the white population. Uh, also in the General So documentary, they talk about how this is where a lot of crazy rumors began about the things that might be included in your Chinese food. (laughs) Yeah. That continues to be like a way to insult people's native cuisines. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, but this, this, all of this combines together the suspicion of the food and the rumors about what the food uh, contained was in part because Chinese immigrants were seen as a threat to the job market. There were approximately 25,000 Chinese immigrants in California by 1851, and there was a concern that they would be taking jobs away from white residents. There was also a xenophobic fear of basically all of the culture that they had brought with them to the United States, including the food. Eventually, that xenophobia led to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And this act, signed by President Chester A. Arthur, established a freeze on Chinese labor immigration. Non-laborers seeking to enter the U.S. had to get special certification from the Chinese government, but it was incredibly difficult to prove that a person had no intent to work as labor once they got to the States. So that avenue of immigration was really largely choked off. This entire situation is also mentioned in more detail in our two-part episode that we did on Executive Order 9066 and the Japanese internment camps. 
Not only did the Exclusion Act make it difficult for Chinese people to enter the United States, it also simultaneously sparked violence by white communities against Chinese communities. But if a Chinese immigrant already in the United States left, they would have to go through the certification process to re-enter the country. So a lot of people stayed in spite of there being so much animosity toward their communities. Yeah, in many cases, people that had immigrated here had, you know, left everything. They had built a life here, so they didn't want to leave because they really had nowhere to go. Uh, and as that door to jobs really closed for the immigrants that were already living in the United States, the need for self-reliant forms of income brought about the rise of two business ventures that are still commonly associated with Chinese entrepreneurs. That's laundry service and food service. And regarding food service, in a really savvy business move, a lot of Chinese restaurant owners adapted recipes to American tastes so that they could build their customer bases. The culinary balance that was struck was sort of foreign but familiar uh, to the white majority. While China's vast size includes all, like a lot, a lot of distinct styles of food, Americanized Chinese food tends to be more homogenous. There's chop suey, which was the first, quote, Chinese dish to gain acceptance in the United States, largely because it was easily adapted to include ingredients that would appeal to the palates of white customers. It was meat, eggs, and vegetables that were a little different from what folks typically had day-to-day, but they weren't too foreign in taste. Uh, that's, that's really a dish that was made for Chinese restaurant use in the United States, not a yeah. dish from China. <laughs> yeah. So for a lot of diners in the early part of the 20th century, chop suey was their introduction to this foreign food. And the Chinese Exclusion Act, initially intended as a 10-year moratorium, was extended for a second decade in 1892 with the passing of the Geary Act, and then it was made permanent in 1902. In the 1920s, it was replaced with a quota system as immigration once again swelled after World War One, And then... Uh, Almost 20 years later, the Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943. Throughout all of this, as anti-Chinese sentiment slowly ebbed, Chinese eateries in the U.S. continued to serve up dishes that offered a taste of Asia, but was still in this sort of comforting, not too aggressive or frightening way <laughs> uh, to appeal to uh, the white diners that they were hoping to get. As a side note, uh, it seems like every December there will be an article about how Chinese cuisine became uh, what Jewish people eat at Christmas. Yeah. Because for a long time, the Chinese restaurants were the only ones that were open on Christmas. Uh, and so now culturally, there's also this connection between Chinese communities and Jewish communities um, around the food that is eaten at Christmas time. Uh, and next up... We will talk about the ebb and flow of Chinese food's growing acceptance in the United States. But first, we will pause for a quick word from a sponsor. By the 1940s, Chinese food had really become a two-way cultural gate in the United States. It enabled white Americans to feel like they had an in with another culture, and it simultaneously offered Chinese immigrants a way to fit into majority white communities. And with China as an ally in World War II and the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act, the early 1940s actually saw an explosion in popularity of Chinese restaurants. 
Unfortunately, though, that wave of acceptance for Chinese culture was short-lived. The Chinese Communist Revolution changed things a lot, and once again, Chinese people living in the United States were viewed with suspicion. There was a drop at that point in the popularity of Chinese restaurants. We actually have a whole, uh, I think, four-part podcast covering this window of Chinese history. For the next three decades, appreciation for Chinese food really waxed and waned within American culture. In 1960, there were 6,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S. 10% of those were in New York City. And that may sound like a lot, but we have a lot more now. After President Nixon visited China in 1972, and he was shown on live television eating Chinese food during that visit, Chinese Cuisine once again experienced a massive boom in popularity in the United States. And this time, uh, this really led to an interesting diversification. So instead of just general Chinese restaurants or what we've come to call American Chinese restaurants, that sort of homogenized version of Chinese food, uh, it became a lot more common to start to see eateries that were specializing in some of the regional cuisines of China. Think Hunan and Sichuan, for example. Mm. Since the 1970s, Chinese food's popularity has continued to grow throughout the United States. And in 2014, there were more than 43,000 Chinese restaurants spread across across the country. Uh, and next up, we will talk about another cuisine that makes up a really big segment of the ethnic food market in the United States. And again, we're using ethnic food in quotes. Uh, and that is Mexican. And it has become so popular that, for example, salsa will now vie with ketchup and sriracha for most popular condiment in America when you see those sort of cutesy cultural food articles pop up. And sometimes it wins those, those, um, which is the most popular condiment discussions depending on what source you're looking at. So in short, Mexican food, huge part of the American cultural, uh, food landscape at this point. In the early part of the 20th century, Mexican immigrants made up a small portion of the United States population. The first instance of tacos arriving in the United States was during the Mexican Revolution, which started in 1910. Before that, most immigrants were from northern Mexico, and tacos, which started being called by that name in the 1880s, were common a little farther south. If you listen to our episode on the Bracero program from August of 2016, you may recall that in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there was a lot of hostility aimed at Mexican immigrants, uh, massive deportation and also segregation. And this was all spawned by the same problem that had caused a distrust of Chinese immigrants, which was concern over the effect migration was going to have on the labor pool. And that environment of distrust fostered an opinion that Mexican food was for the poor and lower classes, and it had that reputation for a long time. For decades, Mexican cuisine was a staple in more low-income homes, but slowly, the middle class, starting in the border states and then spreading throughout the country, came to adopt Mexican food as their own. And in the 1940s, San Antonio, Texas actually started importing chili powder from Mexico to meet the growing demand. In 1962, fast food giant Taco Bell was founded in Downey, California. And by the 1970s and 1980s, Mexican restaurants had become popular neighborhood eateries throughout the country. But then, as now, if you were to go into most Mexican restaurants, you'd see a pretty similar list of items on the menu. Things like quesadillas, tacos, and burritos. The concept of Mexican food has become, as with Chinese food, largely homogenized. 
Mexico, like China, has a number of regional cuisines that don't always get as much focus in restaurants in the States. So in very broad strokes to talk about some of them, northern Mexican food tends to include a lot of beef and cheese and wheat. Oaxaca cuisine includes a lot of corn, chili peppers, and beans. Yucatan dishes feature avocados and slow-cooked salted pork and chocolate. Western Mexican food is characterized by the frequent inclusion of fresh fish, and Veracruz cuisine favors the use of tropical fruit. I want to eat all of that. I know, it sounds so good. (laughs) It doesn't help that we are recording this at 11.48 a.m. As you listen to that list, you probably noticed a number of items that are common ingredients in Mexican food here in the United States, because as Mexican food gained mainstream acceptance, it became a hodgepodge of all the various aspects of regional cuisines that appealed to a broader audience. Yeah, it's not to say there wouldn't have been crossover in those cuisines anyway, but like, it's almost like somebody went through and went, yes, fish, fish tacos would be good. Yes, also, we want the cheese for sure. <laughs> also, put kind of, avocado on a fish taco. Put avocado on everything. Uh, and additionally, approaches to preparation change. So while a burrito in Mexico might include a simple assortment of ingredients like beans and a meat protein, as they became the handheld standards of the U.S., they really changed and started to be packed with additional things and just got larger and larger. So the burrito in its American incarnation didn't even get its start in a border town near Mexico either. It's actually credited to the Mission District in San Francisco sometime in the 1960s. I have witnessed a couple of very heated arguments about what items in a tortilla are acceptable to call a burrito. (laughs) As long as they're delicious, I don't care. But if you're looking at it from a a cultural and historical standpoint, you might want to get more specific. One of the other appeals of Mexican food in the United States was the ability to make it at home. Kitchen cookware sets that included tortilla presses and a taco fryer mold started appearing for the home market in the latter half of the 20th century. And dishes that were both very popular and very unique to American Mexican food also came about in the second half of the 20th century. So, for example, taco salad made its debut in 1968 and fajitas, which I'll confess that I deeply love, were invented in 1971. I love... uh I love the fragrance of fajitas. Oh, I like, love I love it when them. someone else orders fajitas. That not makes like, me really. It, is it the DIY aspect that is no, not for you? The, 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 the flavor of it is never as amazing to me as the fragrance of it. Gustavo Ariano, journalist and author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, takes a more relaxed view of what qualifies as Mexican food. In an interview with the Christian Science Monitor in 2014, he said, quote, I know a lot of Mexicans and people who love Mexican food who believe that there's real Mexican food and fake Mexican food. To me, if you think it's Mexican food, it's Mexican food. But the good news is Mexican restaurants haven't entirely homogenized or they have once again diversified. And many offer lesser known specialty dishes now that appeal to those on the hunt for that, quote, more authentic flavor. Uh, there's also a, this whole discussion. I didn't include it in this write-up, but I, I found it in one place where people were saying that, that for people that are not familiar with any given cuisine, they tend to assume that the spicier it is, the more authentic it is. 
which is really not the case and kind of no. robs a lot of cultures of their actual food identities because it's not all about heat. But Ariano also gave great advice in that interview on how you can find the hidden treasures in Mex- Mexican restaurants. He said, quote, when you go to a Mexican restaurant and you see Spanish on the menu that you have never heard in your life, order it. That will be the regional cuisine and more likely than not, it's really good. Uh, I was reading something about about Mexican cuisine before we came in here to record and the there was one particular writer who was like, y'all stop bragging about how you tried corn smut. Corn <laughs> smut is like a normal part of cuisine. <laughs> you don't get a medal for having tried it. Yeah. Uh, as of 2014, there were more than 7,100 Mexican restaurants just in the 10 cities that were flagged in this one particular article. Thousands more are thread, are spread throughout smaller cities and towns and rural areas. This is similar to, uh, like the place where I grew up was not very large. We, we definitely had multiple Mexican restaurants. Yeah. And I feel like I, I, um, in the area of town I live in now, which is very diverse, I will often see a lot of little small taco shops pop up and often they'll stick around for years and years. Uh, and they're tucked sometimes into just like a random part of a neighborhood, uh, which is kind of awesome because those places often have mm, gold. Super deliciousness. Uh, so next up, we are about to talk about Italian food and its place at the American table. But first, we're going to take a quick sponsor break before we do that. The other big hitter in the triumvirate of popular ethnic foods in America, again, we're using that ethnic foods in quotes, is Italian. And its life in the U.S. parallels that of Chinese food in a lot of ways. Uh, also Mexican food, but th- this one has some pretty direct tie-ins. Uh, in the early 20th century, Italian food, like both Chinese and Mexican, was seen as a cuisine for the lower classes or lower income homes. And the smells of garlic and the red sauces that started to be used in the U.S., not necessarily a particularly Italian thing, uh, were seen as far too pungent and overwhelming to the American palate. That sort of cracks me up because garlic is like the magic siren song that will draw me to any kitchen. Things have changed. Uh, one of the things that's funniest to me as of, as far as people's uh, perception, sort of like mainstream wide perception of what Italian food is, is that it's sort of sp- Spaghetti in a tomato sauce. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, tomatoes did not exist in Italy until after Europeans started going back and forth uh, to North America and brought tomatoes back with them. And then pasta also likely introduced, although that before pasta was introduced into Italy before tomatoes were. But both of those are uh, things that came about a little bit more recently in the grand scope of Italian history. Immigration quotas from the 1920s had a significant effect on the way uh, the Italian immigrant population was distributed throughout the United States. Because the Immigration Act of 1924 cut the Italian immigrant quota from 42,000 to just 4,000 a year, Italian neighborhoods started to shrink. Residents who lived in the Little Italy neighborhoods moved in increasing numbers to the suburbs or other neighborhoods that were less identified by one culture and were more diverse in terms of which cultures lived there. 
The internal migration led to a deeper integration of Italian immigrants into the uh, so-called American melting pot, where they were both influenced and influenced others. And during World War II, uh, Italian immigrants had been classified as enemy aliens, and there were Italian Americans interned in the same way Japanese Americans were. And there, wa- there was, of course, some... Uh, hostility and anti-Italian sentiment that went on at the same time. However, there was a less systematic implementation of the provision that allowed for the removal of Italians to detention centers. Immigrants who had been in the United States for a lengthy period of time and Italian immigrants who had become U.S. citizens through naturalization were not generally subjected to the relocation. Only Italian nationals were. And that was a pretty small sliver of the Italian immigrant population. Well, that already indicates that Italian immigrants were more accepted than some other immigrant populations. Another factor gave Italian culture a boost in the United States. Approximately 500,000 Italian Americans served in the war, sometimes going to Italy to fight. Uh, this further eroded the sense of Italians as outsiders in the United States. It bolstered the image of their cuisine. I will add that at this point, I mean, there had been immigration from Italy to the United States for a long time. So there were a lot of people of Italian descent who were more than one or two generations removed from Italy, which meant that unlike with uh, the Japanese American population, it just was not feasible to try to round up all of those folks and incarcerate them. But what's interesting is unlike Mexican and Chinese food, which were uh, to some degree both really consciously shifted to appeal to American tastes, Italian food in the United States changed at least in part just because of ingredient availability. So, for example, canned tomatoes were inexpensive and they were easy to find at almost any market. And meat was far more plentiful and affordable in the United States than in southern Italy, for example. And so dishes like spaghetti and meatballs that Tracy referenced earlier and baked ziti slowly developed here in the United States in Italian neighborhoods, although those were not common foods in Italy. Even the ever-popular fettuccine Alfredo, which I know I know and love, was invented in Italy, but it took on a very different profile in the United States. According to the lore, in 1914, Alfredo Delelio put Parmesan and butter on noodles as a meal for his wife, who was pregnant. And uh, it was such a great, simple dish that he opened up a restaurant to serve it to the masses. But once Delelio moved from Italy to New York and opened a new restaurant, Heavy cream entered the picture, and that became a much different, much richer, richer, very tasty dish. <laughs> it's so delicious. But, uh, yeah, there are still things that are served similar to his original dish in Europe, but it's usually just called, like, pasta with butter. It doesn't have the name Alfredo, and it certainly is not coated in a, a heavy sauce the way we think of fettuccine Alfredo. Spaghetti carbonara, uh, another Italian-American dish that is now often mentioned as one of the most unhealthy things you can eat, was invented here in 1957. And as for pizza, we did a whole episode on that last year, which we recorded in Chicago at C2E2. It basically experienced the same lifespan as other Italian food. Neapolitan pizza slowly morphed into this Americanized version, was heavier and doughier and has way, way more stuff on top. One of the things I said in that live show was 
if you have this for the first time and all you've eaten your whole life is the kind of pizza that's served in the United States, your first reaction might be, where are the toppings? <laughs> it's a lot, <laughs> lot simpler as a dish. Uh, and pizza, you know, once it had a foothold, has become one of the most popular foods in the United States. Yeah, I was uh, reading in the course of doing research for this uh, a quote from a, a gentleman who runs a Neapolitan pizza restaurant. His specific thing was about the crust being less doughy but also less crispy. So he would have customers come to him and say, this didn't cook all the way. He was like, oh. no, no, no. <laughs> like, no, no, I promise. This is how Neapolitan pizza works. Uh, in the 1990s, according to John Mariani, who is the author of How Italian Food Conquered the World, because foods all conquer things, I discovered while researching this, uh, Italian cuisine in the U.S. really got a, what he perceived as a much-needed makeover, uh, thanks to the rise in popularity of the Mediterranean diet, which took that focus away from the heavy cream-based sauces that were developed here and the massive portions that also came to be kind of an American standard. There were also more refined ingredients becoming more consistently available to both chefs and home cooks, thanks to globalization. Things like truffles and prosciutto became increasingly more available and more popular in the United States. And this development of more options and flavors beyond this heavily Americanized Italian fare caused a massive surge in popularity for Italian restaurants. There are now about 17,000 Italian restaurants just in 10 U.S. cities. Uh, I think very, very similarly to both Chinese and Mexican cuisine, things like pizza and spaghetti people think of as really, you know, cheap food. Yeah. Inexpensive and not nutritionally very amazing for you. Uh, but there are also at this point kind of intriguing, uh, I want to put it in quotes, artisanal pizza places. <laughs> Well, and I feel like there's this interesting parallel that's also gone on that as the food industry has become more health conscious, we are seeing restaurants move to recipes that more closely resemble their place of origin. Mm -hmm. It's like America really is the land of like, put more butter on it, (laughs) (laughs) which don't get me wrong. I love butter, but it is an interesting uh, parallel to watch that development. So foods adopted from other cultures continue to gain popularity in the U.S. Uh, restaurants serving everything from Vietnamese pho to South African babodi, which holy man I'm in love with, are now available in a lot of large cities and even in some small cities. Hybrid foods like Korean-Mexican tacos started cropping up as early as the 1990s. And today, you know, all kinds of international cuisines from all kinds of combinations can be found in restaurants and food trucks, especially food trucks, it seems like, all over the United States. Yeah, I feel like food trucks kind of offer this um, opportunity to experiment more. I could be wrong. I'm I'm literally just um, basing this on personal experiential chasing of food trucks and eating a lot of food from them. You know, it's not the same overhead as opening a restaurant and and having to like staff up and and do things that way. It's a little bit of a smaller initial investment, so I think people have a little more of a a, a sense that they can experiment without being like my whole life just went down the tubes. If a restaurant fails, you might not recover. So uh, I'm, it's not easy to recover from any business failing, but a restaurant seems like a, a much bigger initial investment than a food truck. So I feel like that's why food truck culture has really brought us some amazing and interesting and very creative things. 
So as food trends wax and wane, we will no doubt have opportunities to sample all kinds of other foods in the United States. But for the moment, the the heavy hitters in terms of these international foods that have made their way into like the especially white American mainstream Chinese, Mexican, Italian will continue to be the big three, most likely. Yeah. Uh, especially, I think, once you get out of a city, it drops off pretty significantly how, like, the, the amount of different, uh, cuisines available to you will be. Unless you live in, like, one of the, the great things I have discovered is if you live in, like, a military town, like an Air Force town, where there might be more people from different parts of the globe, mm-hmm. those often have really interesting, um, you know, food scenes where you can get some pretty yummy and different stuff. Yeah, well, and the the places, sometimes the places that are small, but also have a big tourism industry, sometimes will have really, really interesting restaurant yes. scenes. So, you know, little places that maybe have 50,000 people, but a lot of tourism will often have in- pretty interesting restaurant selections, given the size of it. Do you want to do a little listener mail? I sure do. Uh, this listener mail comes from our listener, Kim. And I will tell you that when I opened it, our office manager, Tamika, who I adore, had come over to talk to me. And she just saw me grinning like a fool. And then I had to share it all with her because it's so cool. So... Kim writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, your podcasts have kept me entertained, informed, and inspired for many, many hours, but I'm writing you today because last year's episode on French protest hats, that's when we had our guest April Callahan on, inspired an entire art exhibition that is now on display at the Doyle Art Pavilion at Orange Coast College. Nice! I was considering curating a show of hats by the Birthday Crown Society, uh, a group that began by accident when Kathleen McMurray asked a friend to make her a personal crown for her 40th birthday. Kathleen was protesting the popular idea that we should dread getting older and wanted instead to celebrate the empowerment of entering middle age. Her crowning ceremony was such a success that all her friends wanted crowns for their round number birthdays of any decade. And since 1994, the tradition has been spreading here in Southern California with more than 60 coronations. Your episode on the French lady's fabulous protest hats gave me the historical context I needed to see the birthday crown society hats as both folk art and a form of social protest. And that motivated gallery director Steve uh, Radicevich and I to pursue the exhibition Crowning Glory and an accompanying catalog, which I have included for you as a thank you for your inspiration. This catalog contains portraits by photographer Aaron Nomura that capture many silly people proudly acting their ages while wearing funny hats. It also includes an art historical essay that references the French protest hats and the Stuff You Missed in History Class episode. Thank you and everyone at the podcast for the inspiration from this episode and every episode. Your work really does affect our lives and helps us listeners make connections and generate new ideas. Um, this is the coolest thing. She also adds one more thing. Sometimes people ask how they can get a hat for their round number birthday and the answer is you ask your friends to make you one. <laughs> which is great. I love it. This book is gorgeous and it is so fun and it is so up my alley because it's very creative, really fun art. Um, just the wackiest, most wonderful. They're all sort of art pieces that represent the, the person who will be wearing them for their birthday. I'll try to uh, share some pictures on our social some of them are absolutely breathtaking and gorgeous. Some of them will make you laugh and laugh and laugh. Um, 
everything from hats that look like uh, bird's nests to hats that look like giant cookies to hats that just have a million things on them. And they're all just to celebrate people as they, they transition from one year to the next. And they're really, really fun. And I think everyone should be doing this because that seems like the most fun way to celebrate a birthday. So thank you so much, Kim, because not only is this a delightful letter, but this book is spectacular and the whole thing brought a massive smile to my face. I was literally grinning like a fool looking through this this gorgeous book. So thank I you, want thank a you, cookie hat. Right? Who I'd eat it, but <laughs> uh if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. So that includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest. I don't know if I forgot anything. Uh, if you want to uh, visit our parent site, that's HowStuffWorks.com. You could search for almost anything you're interested in learning uh, by typing it into the search bar and you will generate uh, a load of results that will keep you busy and hopefully happy and well-informed. Uh, you can visit us at MissedInHistory.com for all of the episodes of the show that have ever existed, as well as uh, show notes to the ones Tracy and I have worked on. And as of uh, uh, recently, we have consolidated show notes into the episode page so you can look at our sources right there at the same place you are getting the podcast, which makes life a little easier, fewer clicks for you. Who doesn't want that? Uh, so come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 